brand over coffee conversations are with different experts and inspiring individuals. They may be different in what they do, but they all share one thing in common. They all create, develop, and nurture brands. These conversations will highlight not only their expertise, but also their experiences. And I hope these could help answer some of your questions and inspire you to build your own brands and take your businesses to greater heights. My name is Andrea Ferri, founder of the Creative Brand Studio and your host for this podcast. When you're ready, let's talk brand over coffee. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brand Over Coffee Conversations. On this episode, let's talk about investment, trends, and what it takes to help ensure your business thrive post-pandemic. And I'm really excited to be hearing the thoughts of my guests on these topics today. Fergus Hay is a CEO with a proven track record in commercial transformation, product innovation, and growth. And he has lived and worked all over New York, Chicago, Hong Kong, and Singapore, leading different agencies and businesses. Now, based in London, Fergus is the founder and CEO of the marketing and fundraising advisory firm, Elysian Fields. Hi, Fergus. How are you? So nice to catch up with you again. Great to see you. Even on this snow-covered day, at least we can keep warm over a podcast talking about the things that really matter. Yes, 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 yes. So, okay, let's get started. So, I did mention that you currently lead Elysian Fields. Can you tell us more about the company and what you have been busy with? Yeah, sure. So Elysium Field is an advisory firm that works with venture-backed startups, normally at Series A to Series B level. And we try to help them achieve their growth targets. So most of the business at this stage have made big commitments to investors and in terms of building traction and getting customers. So in order to do that, there are many levers that you need to pull, be it from your commercial model to your marketing plan, to your brand, to your media and channel planning, but also to building a sales team and building an enterprise sales culture. So we work with companies to put all of those um, uh, pillars in place and gear them up to delivering on their promises to their investors. We also help people with fundraising um, as and when required. Very interesting. What a totally different world from what you were doing back in your advertising (laughs) life. Well, you say that, you say that, but the French have a saying that's, uh, that's plus ça change which everything changes, but nothing changes. Okay. And in a way, the, the discipline for um, any tech startup or any tech business or for growth is the same discipline of core marketing practice. You're still trying to find customers, find the right ones, persuade them that you are distinctive and you have a product that is worth paying for, and then engage them in a relationship that generates money over time. So actually the core discipline is the same. What's different is the kind of products you're working with in the landscape. And I think that's where um, the industry uh, has got a really great opportunity to work with the companies that are, that are growing really, really fast. Okay. I'm sure we will talk more about that later. But to begin with, because right now you're in the investment space, right? Uh, so let's get straight to it. When checking out a potential investment, what are the most important considerations for an investor? Well, you know, every investor will have their own investment thesis. And, uh, and often it is quite personal. And when you get to really, really seed and early stage companies, it really does depend on the founding team. But I've found that there are a series of um, kind of key elements that any um, entrepreneur needs to be ticking off if they're to have a successful fundraise. That is, uh, they've really got to show that they've got the right people in their company. 
So that is a diverse mix of management team who have got uh, experiences from both corporate and startup world. And within that is, of course, the values of enthusiasm and hunger and passion and obsessiveness. They've got to show that they've got a product um, that uh, solves a problem that people want. So in that product, it's got to be genuinely making a difference and disrupting a market, providing a solution to a problem that, can, that customers have that isn't currently um, being addressed. They've got to show that they've got traction. So traction means, have you got some customers who are currently using your product and are they willing to pay for it? And really what you're looking for there is not lots and lots of customers, but customers, preferably known ones, who are coming in and using the product and sticking with it. And that's traction and that, that's really, really important. Then fourthly, you've got um, sales. Can you show that you can build growth? And normally that means, have you got an acquisition model where you can identify your ideal customer and you can acquire them at a sensible price and then get them into your sales channel and convert them into a paying customer at a way, in a way that can be repeated and isn't too expensive? And then finally, you look at their finances, like has the company deployed capital in a sensible way? Is it being used um, to create value? Has there been a lot of wastage? Have they missed targets? So those are kind of five broad points that any real um, investor will look at a, an uprising company in. But really at the heart of it is, do you believe that this founding team have identified a market opportunity and they've got a product that you think is going to make a difference? And do you back them to deliver on their promises? So ultimately, these are still branding principles, right? Well, I mean, it's interesting when you look at branding. Branding at its heart is yeah. persuasion, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're persuading someone to believe in what you are, whether you're a can of Coke in the supermarket. Why is a can of Coke more credible than a can of Pepsi? They are the same size. They are the same price. They're in the same format. And they pretty much taste the same, which I know is sacrilegious to those two different companies, but they are pretty much the same. But yet you are either a Coke person or you're a Pepsi person. And the reason that is, is because those brands have occupied that part of your mind that has built an emotional relationship with you. They've persuaded you to use their product. And it's exactly the same with a fundraising um, exercise. You know, in fundraising, you have to persuade people that you've got something that is worth investigating and spending time with because at the heart of it and this is the brutal truth most products are commodities mm -hmm. in the way that pepsi and coca commodity even in the technology space it is very very rare that you find something that is dramatically different to everyone else so then you've got to wrap it up into a package is it your route to market is it the product is it your brand is it your narrative is it the team all of that is a test of persuasion to investors and stakeholders, customers and employees. Yeah, that actually was leading to my next question. How important is branding for an investor to consider investing in a company or a startup? I think probably um, it depends on the category. So um, if you are launching a B2B enterprise piece of technology, then you know branding isn't conventionally something that has been valued in that space, although it should be. It's interesting that the greatest B2B software sales company in IBM mm -hmm. is probably one of the strongest brands in the world. No one gets fired for appointing IBM. That is branding in itself. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are launching a vegan cheese, then a lot of the value in the company is the brand. But, you know, let's think about what, what, is, what is a brand. A brand is about being distinctive. And in any investment case, in any business, you are looking for a business that will be distinctive. Will it stand out? So an investor may not sit there and have a calculation for the value of the brand, 
But they will take it into account is, is this business going to be distinctive in the category that they're in? Because most likely they're going to be a small player at the beginning with less resources and the odds are stacked against them. But do they have a package that allow, enables them to separate themselves from the competition and stand out? And the brand is part of that, along with a bunch of other things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. I was part of a startup a couple of years ago. And one of the things that I really noticed huh, is this fixation to perfect the technology. You know, be ready with the MVP, impress the investors, etc. And this kind of like concept or notion that a brand is only like uh, the design of the landing page or say beautiful social media content or having a logo, having a tagline. But I guess for the two of us and for people who are working in, in branding and in marketing, you know, the real essence of a brand is really making sure that you are differentiated, right? In the market, knowing the consumer inside out, putting this consumer at the center of everything, making sure that everything in the company is aligned with the brand that you're trying to create. And all of these, just from my point of view at the time in the, in the startup space, it seems like it's it was taking a back seat. Everyone yeah. is just fixated into perfecting the technology without really considering, is this really going to be important or relevant for my end user? <laughs> you know, you know, right, that, that is understandable in a way because you have to look at the origination of these companies. So let's take um, Unilever. Mm-hmm. Unilever has always been a consumer goods business and it's rooted in consumer research. And as you know, when you work uh, with Unilever or for Unilever, everything is rooted in insight into the consumer. That is the origination of that company. But take modern tech businesses. They're engineering businesses. The founders tend to be brilliantly smart engineers. And what they're doing is they're solving a problem by creating a product. And that is their absolute focus. And they're brilliant at it. Amazing. They, you know, these products are changing the world as we know it. But they're not rooted in the culture of always validating it with the end user and end customer. And that's where these worlds need, need to combine. Because the bottom line is, the world is littered with clever technology, but that never was, had a product market fit. What we mean by product market fit is within the market, who is your ideal customer? And for that ideal customer, what problem are you addressing? And what is your solution going to do that is going to persuade that customer to change from their current habit to a new habit? And that, when you can repeat it over time and you can show with volume that you've got product market fit, that's when a technology becomes commercialized. And that's when marketing plays a really, really powerful role in the discipline of building a technology business. And at Elysium Fields, we find we spend a lot of our time in this space, working with brilliant engineers, and then really zeroing in on the ideal customer, the problem to be solved, what are they willing to pay for for that? And then how do you take it to market? When you get the alchemy of those two things, brilliant engineering and a customer-focused marketing program, then you can build a business that has got true, true value. And of course, you only need to look at the unicorns in the world to see the ones that have done that. Yeah. Do you have any examples, Fergus, of, say, startups with great branding or have focused on building their brand? Well, you know, I often get asked this and I would, uh, I'm going to give you a macro picture first and then I'm going to, I'm going to pick one startup, which, um, which we were involved in. So, so it's slightly, you know, slightly vested interest. Uh, the macro picture, I think, is if you take 
two unicorn tech brands, Airbnb and Uber. Now, Uber never, in my opinion, invested in a brand, an emotional brand that persuades consumers to stay with them. They invested in a logo and they very, very determinedly uh, put themselves out as a utility. You know, we solve a problem because we can get you transport, cashless, on demand for cheaper than your current price. So that is a very utility-focused organization. And, and the company felt like that, in my view, as a consumer. Now, they rode an amazing wave, didn't they? They disrupted the market. They took over the world. They had a culture inside them called fast and fearsome. They will enter markets fast and fearsome in order to build enough consumers so that when the government wanted to let legislate against them, there was too much support for them. Really interesting. Now, when they were successful, that was great, but then they hit some headwinds. They had boardroom politics. Mm -hmm. They had um, sexual discrimination rumors and, and issues. They had security issues around consumers in the cars, particularly in, in South Asia. And, and then people started coming off the Uber platform. People started going, looking at competitors and like uh, Grab in Asia or Drivey or whatever. And they wobbled. And the pr problem is the consumers had nothing to hold on to. There was nothing about that brand that they were emotionally attached to. So when there were question marks about it, they were quite happy to flip to alternatives. Yeah. Now, let's look at Airbnb. Airbnb have faced way more issues than Uber have ever faced. They've had people's family homes trashed. They've had parties in them. They've had orgies in them. They've had meth dens created in people's garages. They've had things stolen from them. They've had people's family houses burned down. They've had films made in people's family houses that they were not comfortable with. There's so much has happened on the Airbnb platform that is so personal to people's homes, yet the brand and the company has only ever progressed. And why is that? That's because Airbnb from the outset had a mission and a purpose, values and a brand. They said, we're about inclusion. We're about local communities coming together to give each other experiences, stay with someone, have their experiences of their culture, live in their home. And they built an entire inclusion brand about that. And I think kudos goes to the founders, of course, but also to Jonathan Mildenhall, who was my old client at Coca-Cola, who was a CMO there and built this incredible, uh, incredible brand so that they could rise out of it. So that's two examples of macro tech brands, one that didn't build a brand and one did build a brand. And you only have to look at the um, reputation and the performance in the, on the listings um, soon coming with Airbnb uh, to see how they are, are dramatically different. Yeah. Now, can I give you one example on a more reachable level? Mm -hmm. There is um, a brilliant business called Builder.ai. And the founder of that is a guy called Sachin Devdegal, who's a brilliant entrepreneur and a friend. And uh, Sachin uh, built this business called uh, Builder.ai. And when I describe it to you, it sounds um, dry. It is a bespoke software development on-demand business, enabling people to build technology apps and, web and websites without any prior technical knowledge. That is in itself not the most riveting pitch in the world, but what Sachin did really, really well, and we worked with him at helping to do that in a, in a previous agency, is he identified the ideal customer. We built a personality for the brand that really stands out. We built a, uh, a, a brand, a visual brand around it. We had a character and we had an ethos and we really punched it out. And to Sachin's great credit, he carried that through every part of the business, from their trade shows to their communications to their website. Everything was clearly a different gravy 
to the rest of the category. And because of that, they've had great dis distinction and they've built great, great traction. And, you know, they've they are got great investors and a great product and a great business. So that is an example of a technology startup that's done really, really well um, by, by incorporating a strong brand. Interesting how you mentioned actually like, let's just call it like the hard assets of branding and let's say the soft assets of branding. So a lot of say businesses, they fall into this trap of, yes, I need to have my hard assets in place. So I need to have my logo. I need to have my tagline. I need to have my social media accounts. And they actually forget the quote unquote soft assets, which are equally important, right? So it's your culture. It's your vision. It's your mission. It's what you stand for, uh, your values as a company. And I think to your examples, if you really want to succeed, you need to have both in place, right? You need to have your identity uh, in place. So it's your brand personality, but at the same time, also what you really stand for as a brand should be out there for uh, your consumers to really start this relationship with you and choose you over and over, right? Well, you're so right. And, and the way I would look at that is I'd separate it into two buckets. You've got the tactics. Mm -hmm. What are the individual things, the mechanics of marketing that you need to have and deploy in order to build your, um, your consumer base? That's, that's the social media channel marketing. It's what do we do on LinkedIn? It's what's our, how does our acquisition funnel work? What's our paid media strategy? Those are really important tactics. But without the brand, those tactics are quite wasteful, actually, because you don't get the multiplier effect. When you go and target you know, potential B2B customers on LinkedIn, if you just talk about your product and you don't have a distinctive brand that cuts through with a different message, then you don't get a proper ROI. But if you have a really good brand that is identifiable and distinct and it persuades you, then you will get a better response rate. So the ROI is better. In order to have that better brand, the way that we kind of look at it with, uh, with the startups, you say, what is your credibility as a company? Because actually, if you're raising money and you're trying to persuade consumers or customers to try your product that they've never heard of with a brand that they don't know, and to persuade them to leave a brand that they're already using that they do know that might be just be doing an okay job, what are you going to do to persuade them to leave IBM to try you, for example? And that really comes down to your credibility. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so branding and investment ticked. Now let's focus on, let's talk about uh, the realities of today, especially for businesses. So we both know, we all know it has really been challenging for everyone, you know, with all the lockdowns, anxious consumers, uncertainties. So a lot of businesses are really struggling. Fergus, what do you think should a business consider or do in order to survive this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tough question. And, um, and I can only give my view and my opinion. But it's, I'm putting you on the spot, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure kind of, you know, the World Economic Forum has got lots of smart people who have better answers than me. Um, what I know is that um, economies are driven by consumption. Mm -hmm. So at the, at the very base level, what you and I and your listeners decide to spend our, our personal money on today when we leave the house, if we can leave the house, or, or on our phone, um, drives the economy. And I would always argue that you have to look at consumption trends and patterns to understand what the future of your business looks like. And again, this comes back to the discipline of marketing, really knowing your target audience and understanding where the value is going to come from. 
And so the first thing I started doing when COVID started kicking in, after I'd panicked and, you know, stored lots of baked beans in my in my in my larder and stuff like that. I um I just started looking at how people's behaviors are changing. And you can do that anecdotally, just observing. Um, but then you can also start to absorb some research and 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 this this is what I noticed. I noticed that um there was a massive acceleration of technology adoption. We've all seen that ourselves. And people wanted to um still consume but faster and in a more convenient way, and they very quickly unpicked the uh, traditional behaviours that we've all been used to. And there are really obvious examples of that. You would previously have always gone to your local doctor, and you would have known that doctor, and that doctor would have looked after your parents probably, and there's a, you know, a familiarity about it, and you would have queued up, and it would have probably taken you a week to get an appointment, but that's what you did. Mm-hmm. But now, no one's going to doctors. The doctors are actually calling you at home but most likely you're going on to uh, the telemedicine apps like Babylon and getting a GP for £25 for a 15-minute con- consultation. So there you can see a really good example of how the base need hasn't changed. We need medical service, but the delivery of that service has changed. And then you can extrapolate that really, really quickly. Look at the exercise market. You know, Peloton was doing great anyway, but really has gone through the roof. And apps on demand and in-home exercises have soared while gyms have plummeted. And then you can look at the content and entertainment space. You know, we've seen the collapse of the cinemas and it's very sad because they are part of society. But you've seen the incredible rise in adoption of the uh, of the content streaming platforms. And, you know, even with Disney Plus's arrival, we all thought that that would be maybe a market share game. But actually, it's not. The whole category has risen. And then you look at pharmaceuticals and there are so many examples where based on consumption behavioral changes, you can see where are the areas for great growth. So what do I see? I think businesses fall into three categories. I think there are businesses that panic and are inert. They're not doing anything. And I'm really, really sad to see that I think those businesses will, will not be around for in, in the near future. And you can see that on the high street. Then you have the businesses who are trying to adapt fast and they're adapting their current process. So they might be a um, restaurant that now is now trying to deliver food to your home, or they might be a retailer that's suddenly opening up an e-commerce side angle, and that might be 1% of their revenues. And I think those businesses, um, great that they're embracing new routes to market, because that's what we're really talking about, but it's, it's kind of adjacent innovation. But then you've got the businesses who have slapped uh, e-commerce and digital channel delivery of their products and services right at the heart of their business model. And those are the businesses that are going to really thrive. And it's no mistake that you are seeing in Europe an enormous amount of venture capital being placed in European tech at the moment, because people can see that this is the rise of businesses that are tech enabled, understand their customer and have got a seamless route to market that is not relying on the conventional ways of consumption. And I think that applies to both the consumer space, but also to the B2B space. And that's why I think actually we're entering an incredible era of creativity and innovation, where we'll see, sadly, businesses fall on the battlefield, but we'll see great new businesses built on new principles, new values, and using new technology that will shorten the gap between customers and brands to give them richer experiences. And for that, I'm really excited. Yeah, so it's really all about having this awareness on what what people are really doing, right? How consumers are evolving and being there at the right moment to capture this transition, so to speak, and being in the know on what the trends are would really help. So what do you think are like, say, the main trends that we could be looking out for? 
I think um, that they won't be very surprising. I would absolutely look at businesses that have got really strong e-commerce platforms. In fact, it's quite interesting. You know, there's lots of celebration of Jeff Bezos at the moment. And he is the Western world's greatest entrepreneur of the post-war era, for sure. And, uh, and, and you know, in many ways, he embodies the values of great entrepreneurship. He was charismatic. He had a long-term vision. He was determined, frequent innovation, never, never sitting still, always looking, um, being customer-focused. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. You could also argue that um, Amazon have suffocated entrepreneurialism. Because if you're a small to medium enterprise and you need to retail, you have no choice but to go on Amazon that conventionally. And while Amazon will give you access to volume, it takes away value because you lose so much on the commissions, on the delivery costs, on the returns, on the fulfillment. And really, I think in a way, it's a swamp for SMEs. So I think what will be really interesting, and you're already seeing it, are entrepreneurs who are building their own direct-to-consumer platforms. They're saying, you know, we know about Shopify, we know about Amazon, we know about, we've got all these Magento platforms that we've got to plug in with. But actually, we've got to control our own destiny. So if I'm going to be a razor company, I could sell it razor blades on Amazon, or I could be Harry's and set up my own direct-to-consumer e-commerce platform. And that's why Harry's have done so, so, so spectacularly well. And I think you're going to see more and more of businesses, beauty businesses, healthcare businesses, um, fashion businesses, who start to realize that if they don't own their own direct-to-consumer e-commerce uh, platform, then they're really going to not be in charge of their own destiny. And that's a very dangerous place to be. So there are many, many trends that we'll see in the future, but I would really argue to look carefully at your own route to market and how is your route to market going to differentiate yourself from your competitors. And I think owning your own direct-to-consumer space is important. Okay, so, I mean, easier said than done for a lot of businesses, right? They would be like, okay, Fergus, D2C, you know, I I can easily put up a Shopify shop, but then if no one really would go to my Shopify shop, what's the point, right? Uh, So what would be your tips for these businesses that are thinking of, yes, I want to do D2C because I'm done with all these big e-commerce giants, taking 25, 30% commission, right? So what would be your, your biggest tip maybe for a business that wants to start their D2C effort? You know, one of the things that I ask people very quickly is what do you want personally? What is it that you personally want? Is it that you want a business that you have influence over and gives you a good lifestyle? And that's 99% of the businesses, by the way. Great, super commendable. Or... Are you trying to dominate a market and be the next whatever, Etsy or whatever? Because it's quite important to think like that because you've got to understand how much risk do you want to take. Because if you want a lifestyle business, then it's probably you don't want to take much risk. Mm -hmm. And you want to have a really good business with products that you're really proud of and or services that you're really proud of with really happy customers that gives you a good personal economy, personal wealth creation that enables you to live. And that's great. In which case, I think Amazon, you know, or, or is not, not a bad place to be. If you want to build real scale and real value, then you need to take risk. And in which case, a direct-to-consumer play is capital intensive, right? Because you've got to market to the consumers, you've got to acquire them. But once you've acquired them, you've got them on your database, and then you can use a proper customer value migration program to really build their value over time. But you've got to acquire them. 
And that means you've got to take risks. So you've got to raise some money, you've got to put it in, and you've got to really hope that your customer engagements and relations really secure them. So I think it does depend on what your personal motivations are. And I'm not sure enough people are honest with themselves about what their personal motivations are. It's actually interesting that you mentioned that because we're helping an up-and-coming brand in Asia. It's a beauty brand. So initially, they were like, okay, Andrea, we want to launch the brand and we want to be in Lazada and uh, Shopee, the Asian platforms. And then I told them, okay, so you will be uh, spending a lot of money on advertising and then you will push people to actually buy from these, let's just say, retailers, right? So when I told them the D2C option, the owner was really like, after a day, she was like, okay, I'm making the decision. I'm taking the risk. I want to own the brand and I want to do the D2C. Yeah, so great. Absolutely correct. It's really, it has to be a personal decision of, of the owner, right? Okay, I'm willing to make the investment, take the risk because yes, um, it's harder to do it on your own. <laughs> and expensive. Right? And, and expensive. expensive. And expensive. Correct, correct, correct. So, okay, Fergus, last two questions because I know that I've been kidnapping you for too long now. <laughs> so... We actually want to ask a question posed by one of our listeners. So Eric from Germany is asking, what attitudes or skills investors look for in young entrepreneurs or founders? Tenacity. They, you know, they really want to see, there are many people with brilliant ideas. Mm-hmm. There are many people with brilliant ideas, but they're really looking in the eyes of young founders and saying, how far are you going to go? Are you going to, because you are going to hit headwinds all the time. And it's such a cliche, but they just want to see ferocious tenacity. And I would add one thing to that. And, and, you know, I'm not an investor, right? You know, I work with some great funds and and have met some amazing people. But I would add one other thing. And I would say I really want to see strategic discipline. And, um, you know, we're working with uh, fantastic entrepreneurs at the moment out of Israel um, who are really validated. They listed their last business and they're going again. And we're doing working from ground up with them on their commercial model and their value propositions and products, et cetera. What I love about these guys is they are so strategically disciplined. Many people will go on assumptions. I assume X, so I'm going to make Y. And then they build the entire business on assumptions. And then they run into investors and some investors will be persuaded by the assumptions. But the thing is, you have to challenge those assumptions. And the guys out of Tel Aviv that we're working with, they have challenged nine or 10 of the assumptions or the hypotheses that have been developed with a whole series of validations with end consumers or customers, whole series of revalidations, validate that assumption, validate that hypothesis. So you really get down to the most distilled, crystallized product proposition, customer problem and market, market element that you're resolving. And I think that, um, I don't think there's enough of that. And so, so investors always say that they look for tenacity. And I think underneath that, what they also are looking at is the strategic discipline, do the work, validate your hypotheses and assumptions, make it incredibly rigorous. And at Elysium Fields, we often get asked to help people pitch for their series day. And, uh, and in the end, they're pitching. We're not pitching. You know, it, it's on them to do it. But we have methodologies and models that help them get to a robust case. But what we always say to them is your, your series A pitch or your investors pitch, seed, angel, series A, it's an iceberg. You may only have 15 slides, but underneath each slide, there's got to be really significant strategic rigor, evidence, and data to validate everything because the the investors are going to go there. Mm -hmm. And if you're not strong on that, you haven't got a hope in hell. So it's not about the sexy 15 slides. Anyone, you you can get someone to design you 15 slides. 
the depth behind it. And, that, and that's what I think really, really important. Yeah, I was just nodding the whole time, especially when you mentioned tenacity. I mean, I always say it's so easy to say you want to be an entrepreneur, but to stay one is a decision you have to make every freaking single day, right? <laughs> That's great. I love that. All of a roller coaster ride, you know? Yeah, well, you know that. You are an entrepreneur. So, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah what have you learned from the process? Um, two things. Number one, your past trainings really, really help. I remember when I was young, starting in my career, money, of course, would be an important factor, but it was not a deal breaker for me. What was most important was that I was always doing, uh, let's just say, hard accounts, getting the best training, you know, working with great and sometimes difficult bosses because that yeah. helps in the training <laughs> um, yeah. and it helps you know because right now I can like even with my eyes closed I can like I don't know just pop out presentations and it, it just it just becomes more uh, efficient let's just say right yeah. and then the second one is to always have your eyes on the price and always look at the big picture because it's not a bed of roses every day. You know, some people would say, oh yeah, it's so nice to be your own boss. But that also means that at three in the morning, while everyone is asleep, you're still up working yeah. <laughs> your boss, yeah. right? So, but if you have that focus and you say, okay, I'm doing this because this is my purpose. This is my goal. This is the reason why I do what I do. Then it makes it much easier. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I think that's totally right. And, you know, if you go back to your first question, what do investors look for in entrepreneurs? And I gave you five metrics. Mm -hmm. The first one is people. Yeah. And it's not, you know, and it really is about the, what, what have those people done in their career to date? Yeah. You know, and that's really important is a diverse mix of it. You know, you've got great big corporate experience, right? And so if I match great big corporate experience with a, you know, a second time entrepreneur or someone who's grown up in an entrepreneurial company, you know, that's good alchemy, isn't it? So, um, so, you know, that, that's why the people piece is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And also like working with good people. That's one of the filters that I have, you know, yes, the, the expertise is a given, but I yeah. want to work with just really innately good people. You know, yeah. so uh, that's no the hardest drama. thing to prove. No drama is <laughs> like it's so I'm hard, working day you know. in and day out. And if I have to get on a Zoom call and I'm dreading to talk to this person, whether it's a partner or a client, then what's the point, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a there's a good book called Radical Candor, which really yeah kind of gets through that quite quickly. And we've all worked in environments that are um, not conducive to good output, and mm -hmm. uh, and I've had experience of that. And that is reductive. So mm -hmm. if you deploy a philosophy of radical candor, where you say to them, hey, Dre, actually, I'm really, I'm sorry, I'm just not enjoying the dynamic we have here. Yeah. So either we change it up or we cut our losses. Yeah. And I think that is a sign of tenacity as well, to know which way to go at which point. And because, you know, I've seen great businesses be ruined by poor teams. So, yes. so and that, that's a real shame. Yeah. Okay. So Fergus, as we end, my last question, as an entrepreneur and, you know, the CEO of your own company now, what has been the most important lesson you've learned so far that maybe, you know, could help inspire our audience today? It's a really great question. Um, I'm going to use a metaphor that someone else told me about, and I think it's great. The diagnosis is that um, entrepreneurs are relentlessly 
anxious, always moving, always moving, always moving, and, uh, and trying to nail things down and move on. Someone said to me once, and I think this is a great experience, and I've, I've adopted this, which is imagine that your entrepreneurial journey is like an archaeological dig. And as you start digging, you might discover a little artifact. And you're like, wow, that artifact, that is the talon of an eagle. It's a talent of an eagle, is the assumption. And then you brush away and you dig around it and you brush away and you go, oh, it's not the talent of an eagle. It's the tooth of a tiger. It's the tooth of a tiger. Then you keep digging and you keep brushing and you realize it's not the tooth of a tiger. It's the claw of a dinosaur. And it's a massive dinosaur with eternal size and lessons to learn from. But you would have only known that if you had scraped away at the archaeological dig and taken the time and challenged your assumptions and explored it before leaping to a conclusion. This, that's definitely the journey that I've been on, and it's definitely what I now help entrepreneurs doing, which is before you leap into a decision, because that decision will cost you in the future. Yeah. Really make sure you've looked at all the assumptions around it and clean and brushed away all the dust until you understand what do you really got in front of you, because it's not the talent of an eagle, it's actually the tooth of a dinosaur. Yeah. And that is, uh, and that's the the one thing I would share. So keep digging. <laughs> keep digging. Keep digging. Okay, great. So as we end, I also just want to share my takeaway from this conversation. So a strong brand, as we've discussed, plays a huge part in building credibility and relationship, I guess, with customers, right? So making it so much easier to close business deals, sell to new, and also repeat customers who choose you over and over versus all the many other options in the market. So aside from working at making sure your business could sustain through challenging times, including surviving the pandemic, building your brand also helps in driving sales. And this could help attract potential investors. Yes, of course, these investors view the company as a whole before making any decision. But ultimately, what they really want is to ensure that they are making a sound investment. And having your brand in place plays a critical role in helping convince them. So on that note, Fergus, thank you. Thank you so much. That was such a wonderful conversation and a good My pleasure. I enjoyed it a huge yeah. amount. And if anyone's got any follow-ups, please, you can publish my email address and I'm happy that, to. That I will do. Yes. So yes, please stay safe and healthy in the UK. All bundled up. <laughs> All bundled up. Thanks yes. a lot, Ray. Yes. Take, Take care. care. Ciao, ciao. If you enjoy listening to Brand Over Coffee Conversations, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Please do not forget to share your reviews and help spread the love on social media by tagging hashtag BrandOverCoffee. For questions, comments, and topic suggestions, you may reach me on Instagram at AndreaA.Ferry. Thank you for listening to Brand Over Coffee Conversations. Brand Over Coffee Conversations